How was work? Nothing unusual. Email was down again. And uh, Bill called me into his office again. What's wrong? Nothing really. He just thinks he can come down and fit in with these blue collar guys. You know, he's white collar. Or you've done something wrong again. And you're getting in trouble. And you'll get demoted. Then you'll stop shaving. There goes my vacation. Maybe you'll even get fired. And then you'll do that lazy thing and I'll have to go back to work. And there goes the house. We had plans for this house. We'll be living out of our car or out of the street and eventually we'll be forced to move in with your mother. How was your day, Kim? Well, Dana's having a party Friday night and I thought I could go. But before you freak out, it's not going to be that big of a deal. I mean, y'all guys know me. You're a great kid, but there's no stopping the peer pressure. It just takes one sip and you're hooked. And then there's the smoking and the piercings and the tattoos and the boys. Even good boys don't have good intentions, never mind the bad boys. Oh, and you'll go straight for one of the bad boys and he'll introduce you to all the bad things and you'll get pregnant and drop out of school and we'll never see you again. And we'll be stuck with your kid. What about you, Mom? I've been considering taking up string art. No. Desi's been doing some really wonderful things with it. You can do anything with string. Did you know you could make refrigerator magnets? Everyone knows string art is a gateway craft. You'll start knitting and making me hats and scarves and sweaters and making me wear those sweaters. And you'll stop dyeing your hair and get those grandma glasses and you'll want a cat, which will kill my allergies and probably lead to more cats. And you'll want to make things and bring it to my class and embarrass me in front of all of my friends. Is this a cat hair? Not prone to this, okay? We lie awake at night, playing out scenarios and things like this in our head, worried about this relationship or that project at work, how things might go with our kids. Then we wind up rolling over, looking at the clock, and we think, if I can fall asleep right now, I'll get five hours. And we roll back over, and then a new thought comes into our mind, which changes every scenario that we have been thinking about. And suddenly our mind starts going over all these scenarios again and again and again. And we roll back over and we look at the clock and we go, if I could fall asleep right now, I'd get four hours. And then we start worrying about how much sleep we're not getting, right? Worry is something that happens to all of us, right? How many of you guys would admit that you tend to be maybe, maybe not all the time, but you can hit that worrying worst case scenario kind of moment? Anybody? Okay. Um, it's odd that we do this to ourselves. We are Christians, right? We sincerely believe in God. We believe in God's sovereignty. We believe that he is in charge. In fact, we even sing things and say that he is in charge. Did we not just hear this? 
I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves. When oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace for I am yours and you are mine. And then we sing songs like, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. And yet we still have such a difficult time. Today we're doing just a two-week, it's the beginning of a two-week mini-series called The Christian Atheist. Now, I am boldly ripping off the uh, author of the book's title by the same name, called The Christian Atheist. Although it's interesting, he and I were thinking parallel thoughts. He wrote a book about them. I did not. Uh, my, <laughs> my, my thoughts went a little differently than his thoughts, although his thoughts did help inform some of the sermon. Uh, so I want to make sure that Craig Groeschel and his book, The Christian Atheist, do get props for uh, having a participation in this message. It is a good book. I do encourage you to pick it up and read it if you have the opportunity. Uh, we are going to explore two complementary ideas, both of them centering on this same theme, that we profess our faith, we believe in God, we believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins, and yet somehow we don't always act in accordance to those beliefs. And as you've already seen or heard, the first area we're going to tackle is worry. So, if you lean in for just a minute, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, okay? Everybody ready? Pastors worry too. <laughs> we know all the verses. We have seen God work in mighty ways. We have developed a good relationship with our Savior, but guess what? We still worry. We worry about how the sermon went. We worry about the agenda for the board meeting, church finances, a disgruntled member, the visitors experienced this week, were people reaching out to them, were they friendly to them? We worry about, um, let's see, the dynamics of small groups and discipleship groups. We worry about making sure that we are being true to God's word. And we worry about, are we going to have enough time to do hospital visitation? And then in my case, you can also add to it, I worry about the teenagers. I worry about the Bible study. I worry about the games and the food. I worry about the outreach and the new tables in the lobby and how that's going to go over. And the donuts, sprinkles or no sprinkles. Oh my goodness. Where does it end? Then you add all of that, or to all of that, you add that our personal lives. And while most nights I will tell you that I fall asleep just fine, I have to admit there are some occasions where I'm tossing and turning, worrying about what may come next, and playing out scenarios in my head, just like many of us here today. So, when someone else is worrying, uh, it seems to be easy for us, right? We know exactly what we should say when somebody else is worrying. After a friend in the church is pouring out their heart to us about their financial concerns or their relationship concerns or their family matters or a medical concern that may even border on life and death, many of us encourage those people with the exact same phrase. Don't worry, brother. God is in control. And don't get me wrong, that is a perfectly acceptable encouragement. Don't stop saying it because it is absolutely 
true. But it is a whole lot easier to say that to someone when they are going through concerns and worries than when we are going through concerns or worries ourselves. When we are faced with a serious problem or issue of life, it can be tough not to worry. We know we shouldn't, we try not to, but it is hard to believe that God is in control when life feels so out of control. The problem with worry as Christians is that while we profess our faith in God, what we are effectively doing is living like God is not in charge or that like there's no God at all. Hence the title, the Christian atheist. For all of us, worry is a control issue. We dream up all these worst case scenarios that haven't even happened yet. And because we cannot do anything about what has happened, because it hasn't actually taken place yet, we worry about these things, that maybe these things really will come true. And worry for some of us looks like trying to fix things. You know, yes, I trust in God, but he could really use my help on this one. Right? There is a couple in the Bible who thought that way. Their names were Abraham and Sarah. And we're not going to take the time to read their story, but in Genesis chapters 16, 17, and 21, you can check out the story. God had promised to Abraham and Sarah a very special child. And they had been going along and going along and going along, and the child still hadn't come. And so Sarah says, hey, you know what? Let's start this family, but how about start it with the servant girl over here? And Abraham said, well, uh, okay. And so they started this family and Ishmael is produced. Well, eventually God comes through with his promise and here comes Isaac, the child of promise. Ishmael and Isaac and that family, if you read the story, it caused nothing but problems within that family. And to this day, Ishmael and Isaac are still fighting with each other, whether you realize it or not. The Ishmaelites are now the modern-day Arabs, and Isaac's descendants are the children of Israel, and they're still fighting with each other to this day, all because two people decided to take matters into their own hands rather than trust in God. And if you can believe it, Pastor Keith has done this on occasions. Um, the very first mission trip I took the kids in Michigan on, we were coming home. We were in the airport in Los Angeles, and we were supposed to fly from Los Angeles to Atlanta to Detroit. I will never understand airplane math. I just don't get it. But anyway, Los Angeles. Now, if you know anything about airlines, you have, uh, there is a, a minimum amount of time that you are given between it for a layover. The legal minimum is 45 minutes. While we're on the ground, sitting in the airplane, the airlines say, well, we're going to try out this new food service, and so they're switching things around, so we're delayed on the ground. Anybody want to guess how long we were delayed on the ground? 45 minutes, okay? So here's Pastor Keith freaking out in the airplane the entire ride, probably drove those poor airline attendants nuts, just go, when are we getting in? What gate are we getting in? Where are we going? What's this? How about this? And all these questions just driving, 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 trying to get answers so that I could get us to where we needed to be because I knew 
all the things that were going to get affected afterwards. Well, we land, and we've got like five minutes to get to the next gate. It looked like a scene out of Home Alone, okay? It just did. All of us just crazy running through the airport trying to get there. Now, I had one of my older students who I trusted. He was running faster than everybody. There was a, if you know anything about the airport in Atlanta, to get from Terminal A to Terminal B, you have to get on a little train to get from place to place. He got to the train first, and it was just about ready to take off, and I just said, Todd, go, run, get to the gate, and I'm waiting for everybody else to catch up to us. Uh, we finally get on the train. We get to the terminal. We pull up, come running in, and Todd is standing there, and he turns, and he looks at us, and he says, they won't open the gate. We missed it. All of my worst fears for this section of the trip have just, just come true, and here I am, left standing in the airport with 16 out-of-breath people, all looking like, now what? For some of us, worry looks like trying to fix things ourselves. For others of us, worry is mulling over options actions or choices again and again and again sometimes to the point where no action gets taken at all now there's a difference between being a careful thinker and thinking through your actions and what you're going to do and being a worrier and thinking through your actions and thinking through your actions and thinking through your actions and never getting over here to doing anything about those things in both cases trying to fix things yourself, or mulling over options into indecision, we are holding on to something that we should undoubtedly let go of. We're either holding on to our own abilities, or we're holding on to fear. So, the author of the book, Craig Groeschel, puts it this way. Many of us treat worry like a friend. We don't consciously think or talk about it that way, of course, but how we live tells a different story. We clutch worry to our chest like our favorite stuffed animals from our childhood. When we worry, it comes down to not trusting the promises, the provision, and the power of God. So if you are in this situation today, there's something maybe causing you worry. I would like to remind you of the God who is in control. So the cure to worry, number one, is trusting in the promises of God. Now, if I were to take you through all the promises of God that were fulfilled in Scripture, this would be an hours-long message. No amen? What's the matter with you people? If I take just one promise that ran all the way through the Old Testament, and we'll see how faithful God really was. According to Walter Kaiser, there is 65 direct references to the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Now, this does not include indirect references, and nor does it include uh, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. But the very first mention of the Messiah is when God was punishing Adam and Eve, and he finally turned to the serpent, and he said to the serpent, he, meaning the Messiah, will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. 
It's the very first prediction about the Messiah coming. Fast forward a little further in time. We're going to go all the way up to King David. And to King David, God reveals to him and says, You will have a descendant sit on the throne forever. Referring again to the Messiah, Christ, who is going to be sitting on the throne forever and ever. And then if you check out all the Old Testament prophets, which I know sometimes they're a little harder to read, but you check out all those Old Testament prophets and there are multiple prophecies, promises about who the Messiah is going to be, where he's going to come from, so on and so forth. Then you get to the New Testament. And we finally find out who the Messiah is. So basically it starts over here in Genesis really wide. Here's the very first promise and it's just so wide open we don't really understand. But as we go through the Old Testament it just gets more and more narrow. The things that it says about the Messiah help us understand and hone in and zero in on who the Messiah is going to be until Jesus finally gets here so that we can recognize the fact that he really is the Messiah. And God promised that the Messiah was coming and that he would save his people from their sins. Now, number one, if the Messiah really came and God promised that the Messiah was going to save people from their sins, guess what that really means? Messiah's here, that's proven, that means you can be saved from your sins. God unquestionably delivered on the promise of the Messiah. And what that means for us today, as we read through God's promises, is that we can be assured that God is going to fulfill those promises. Um, now, this is not a name it and claim it kind of sermon. I don't do those, and in fact, if anything, I'm on the opposite end of the scale. There's a lot of verses that Christians like to claim as promises from God that were never intended for Christians. They were intended for an Israelite back in 700 B.C., not for us in what is it, 2021. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Rather than dwell on things that are not really promises to us, let's dwell on the ones that are promises to us. First one, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. The author of Hebrews is quoting from Deuteronomy, and he says something very simply. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The promise is real simple. You can count on the fact that God will always be there for us. He will never turn away. Period. It's something that we can put our faith and our trust into. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them from my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them from my, out of my Father's hand. So, here's the thing. If you have eternal life in Christ, which means you have recognized the fact that you are a sinner and that you have nothing to hand to God and say, please let me into heaven, because the best stuff that we have is just not good enough. 
So we have to rely on someone who is perfect to be able to achieve that, which is Christ. So when we put our faith and trust in Christ, recognizing that we can't do it ourselves, we are now in Christ. And because of that, you never have to worry about perishing. There's another word for perishing. It's called hell. You never have to worry about hell, period. And you never have to worry that somehow someone or something is going to take you away from God. You're going to find this out real quick. I have a lot of favorite verses. I'm going to say that an awful lot of times. Even in this sermon, these are some of my favorite verses. Okay? This is why. It's like Jesus is playing, my dad is bigger than your dad on the playground with somebody. Okay? He's going, my dad gave you to me. Nobody can take him away from me. But if you're still worried, my father, who is greater than all, I don't care who you think your daddy is, my daddy is greater than all of them, and ain't nobody taking you away from him. Simple as that. Third verse. Third promise. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his glory and goodness. Again, if you are in Christ, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, Jesus is supplying to us everything we need for life and godliness. So using excuses and saying things like, oh, I don't get it, or I can't do that, or so on and so forth, doesn't cut it because God is giving us the things that we need so that we can learn, grow, so that we can be godly and live a godly life. So first thing is trusting in the promises of God. The second thing is trusting in the provision of God. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open them to Matthew chapter 6, because we'll be here for a couple extra minutes. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34, will also be on the screen. No discussion of worry would be uh, complete without Jesus' famous words from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body or what you will wear? Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he, uh, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. 
but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, just to help you understand, right before this passage, Jesus was talking about two topics. He was talking about fasting from food, like not eating food, and he was talking about storing up treasures in heaven. Then he starts this passage out and says, therefore, in other words, as a result of everything that I just said about food, about storing up treasures in heaven rather than earthly treasures, now he says, don't worry about those things because life is so much more than just food and earthly treasures. In fact, Jesus uses a word for life that has a wider meaning than just living and breathing. Uh, the word is suke. We get our English word psyche from it. It's referring to all of life, mental, physical, feelings, our being, all of who we are. Then Jesus tells us that God will provide by saying, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Jesus is arguing from the small to the large. He's arguing from a bird to a human. He's arguing from an animal not created in the image of God to a human who is created in the image of God. And he's saying, if I'm taking care of this little guy over here, why is it that you are so concerned about whether I'm going to be taking care of you over here? Of course I'm going to be taking care of you because you are my special creation. You are made in my image. Jesus adds an interesting little statement, and he says, Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to their life? Do you know where the word worry actually comes from? It's an old English word borrowed from Germanic. And the term is worgen, and it means literally to strangle. Now think about that for just a second. Is that not the best definition of worry that you have ever heard? Because worry just sucks the life out of you if you don't learn to trust and move that direction. But Jesus again illustrates his point, and he says, the flowers of the field are more beautiful than Solomon on his best day. Okay? King Solomon working, walking out in his best outfit, the, the kingly garb and all that kind of stuff. He says, you know what? The flowers of the field look better than he did. I'm taking care of them. If the flowers of the field are not escaping my attention, why do you think that our lives are going to get passed over by God? And Jesus adds, stop worrying about your needs because God knows that you need them too. The pagans chase after all this stuff because that's all they know. And by the way, let me change that term for just a second. The Bible says the pagans chase after all this stuff. The atheists chase after all this stuff. When we start doing that, when we start worrying like they worry, that's what we're effectively doing. We are reverting back to that in a practical sense in how we actually are operating. 
They do that because they don't know any better. They don't know the God who provides. They don't know who he is and what he is like. Now, let me keep things balanced. It does not mean that we don't put effort into attaining food or clothes, but it does mean that we remember the provider, that there is a provider and that he does provide, and it is a great chance and opportunity to bring in that whole concept of thankfulness. There is a provider. I should be thankful for what he is providing for me. So we can trust the promises of God. We can trust the provision of God. And finally, we can trust the power of God. And to go over this idea of power of God, I just wanted to take again a little walk through the scriptures of certain scripture passages and pick out certain categories of the power of God. And the very first one is the fact that God is over all the nations. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And again, these are some of my favorite verses. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say. Let us throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. I love these verses because they are a great reminder of who really is in charge. Now, I know many people have been turning off the media lately just for their own mental health because of the craziness of the world or because of slants in the media and things of that nature. But if you have taken notice of some of the things that are going on in the world, you have to sometimes shake your head and go, this world seems like it's crazy and out of control at the moment. But verse 4 helps put us, give us a good perspective of what really is true. It says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs at these people. You get it? Um, you know when you laugh at someone who's coming up against you? When you got nothing to worry about, right? That's when you laugh at someone who's coming against you and making threats or what have you. So picture this. Um, I know people debate this, and uh, we may have an argument right here in the church, you never know, but greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, that's usually the two names that come up. Now, if you were my age and you were raised around Chicago, you already know the answer to this question, which, by the way, is the only answer to this question. But... If by some great fortune we can meld the time together and we can bring Michael Jordan's Bulls together with whoever LeBron happens to be pray, playing for at the time, and we bring these two teams to play against each other and we get to score tickets and go to this game. Even more fortunate than that, after the game is over, you and I get to go up and meet these two legends of the game, okay? And the first thing out of my mouth is, you know what? My friend and I were talking, and we think we could take you on in a game of two-on-two. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> That's the same response that Michael Jordan and LeBron are going to give me and whoever is standing next to me. I guarantee it. Why? Because they're not even worried. 
This is giving you just the slightest picture of why the one in heaven, the one enthroned in heaven, laughs. It doesn't matter who is coming against him. It doesn't matter how many are coming against him. He has the power and the authority, and there ain't nobody who's going to be taking it away from him. Okay. The second area, first area is God is God over the nations. The second one is that he is God over nature. He's displaying his power. Mark chapter 4, starting with verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Leaving the crowd behind, they took, uh, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now, we get this one. Jesus and the disciples are on the lake, and this sudden storm blows up. That lake happens to be prone to those kinds of storms. The disciples are scared to death. Now, it must have been a pretty nasty storm because they were, most, a lot of them were fishermen, so they knew what it was like on that lake. They were terrified. And when Jesus wakes up, he says, quiet, be still. And if the disciples thought that they knew terror before, now they really know terror because they're looking at this man who just spoke to the weather and changed it. Now, we all remember the derecho about 10 months ago, right? I was in this building that morning watching the power go out in the building, watching the thing come in from across the road, all this kind of stuff, seeing it come at us. And at one point, I couldn't see really well, so I walked up over to the glass in the lobby and stood there to watch, like any intelligent human would. (laughs) If I had walked outside during that storm and said, hey, knock it off, And you were there with me, and you watched me do it, and all of a sudden, everything just got calm. You would be looking at me and going, who is this guy? And I am not going anywhere near him. That's crazy, right? Jesus, God, has got power over nature as well. Just reminding us. This is the God that we profess, the one who can control, has control over the nations, the one that has control over the weather with just even a few words. When you are prone to worry, remember stories like this from Scripture. Last one, he is God over the future. I want to show you one final passage. It's Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 42. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. First thing I want you to take notice of is that Jesus was genuinely concerned. In fact, in the book of Luke, it says that he was so deeply concerned that he was actually sweating drops of blood. Fear and anxiety, like a whole lot of other things, so anger, for example, are not in and of themselves sinful. How we deal with them might be. When we take matters into our own hands, uh, when we become worst-case scenario people, what we are saying to God is basically, I don't trust that you have this under control. Our worry is really an assault on God's sovereignty. But the second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus prays, and what he is doing is he is uh, fully displaying his trust in the fact that the Father's, um, of the Father's sovereignty over the future. He says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus trusted his future, and he trusted the future plans for our salvation into the father's plan. He knew the physical pain that was coming his way. He knew the separation that he was going to feel from the Father. But in those moments, here's the thing. Jesus did not step outside the plan and say, I'm going to find another way, God. I'm going to find another way, Dad. I don't like this way that we talked about. No, he said, is there another way? He came to the Father first and said, is there another way? If there's not, I will still do this plan because I will follow you into the future. I trust your future plans for what is going to take place. Jesus trusted the Father's will to see him through what was coming. It's not as I will, but as you will. There's no doubt that in the face of anxiety and sorrow, Jesus fully trusted what his Father laid out. Because Jesus knew that his death was going to bring reconciliation for many people to come to the Father. And so he's setting an example for us in the face of fear, anxiety, worry. We can still have full trust in God's sovereignty over our futures, over what is coming in life. Because God has control over the future, we can trust the God in the midst of our worry or our concern. And while we may believe in God, when we allow that fear to, and worry to dominate our lives, we are effectively behaving like atheists, not trusting in God's sovereignty. So remember that he is sovereign over the nations, that he is sovereign over nature, that he is sovereign over the future. We can trust in his promises, in his provision, and in his power. When I was standing in the airport with those 16 out-of-breath students and adults, I was not really acting like God was in charge. I was not trusting God's promises. 
Now, there's no promise in Scripture that I'm aware of that God is going to deliver us from an airport, but there are promises that God will be with us no matter what. I was not trusting in the provision of God. He could have created a way home that I never could have seen. He could have had another airline take us home. He could have worked out details that I could have never imagined. And yet, here I am standing in an airport as the pastor of these students, functioning as an atheist because I am not trusting in the provision of God. And I wasn't trusting in the power of God. God has got more power than we can even begin to dream up. So rather than trust that God had the power to create a way home that I could not see, I chose the path of worry and the path of being a Christian, but acting like an atheist. All because I'm not trusting in God's sovereignty. After it was clear that we were not going to be getting on our plane, our group is now standing around in a circle. And you have to understand what condition I'm in at the moment. I am just seething on the inside because we did not make it all because the airlines wanted to change the food, all because we had to run through the airport like maniacs, all because of all these things. I am just so ticked. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to do anything at that particular moment. We wind up standing in this circle. The eventual question gets asked, what do we do now? One of the students says, while I'm feeling like this, one of the students suggests, why don't we pray? You'll have to tune in next week to find out how the story ends. <laughs> Let's pray. God, thanks tonight for today. Uh, Lord, thanks for your word and how it can instruct us. Lord, thanks for the fun and the laughs we can have, kind of laughing at ourselves, because we know that all of us are in this boat sometimes. We, uh, we get so worked up, we get so worried sometimes, and we realize that we are not really displaying our trust in you. Even though we proclaim it, we're not displaying it. Lord, help us to be people who are able to do that all the time when things are going good that we're trusting you, but also when things are so crazy out of control that we're also trusting you in the middle of that as well. God, thanks. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.